This episode of The New Disruptors is brought to you in part by FinbergCPA.com. Your job is to make what you do the best you can. It's Abraham Finberg's job to make your life tax and accounting worry-free. From dealing with pesky 1099Ks to complex accounting needs, go to FinbergCPA, that's F-I-N-B-E-R-G-C-P-A dot com for all your financial support. Services start as low as a 15-minute phone consultation session to outsourcing your whole internal accounting office. Use the promotion code DISRUPT to get a free phone consultation today at FinbergCPA.com. We're also brought to you by New Relic. High fives to all the rule breakers and disruptors from New Relic. Here's to working late nights and to wearing oversized concentration enhancing headphones upon your furrowed brows. They thank you. The entire internet thanks you. Visit newrelic.com slash disruptors to learn more about their integrated web application monitoring. And if you'd like to become a direct supporter of this podcast, visit patreon.com slash newdisruptors, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, where you can become a patron for as little as $1 per month. Thanks this week to patrons Gravity Fish, Gary Pugh, and Abraham Finberg. Welcome to The New Disruptors, a program that says all rotations of objects are arbitrary. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman, the editor and publisher of the magazine. The New Disruptors is part of the Boing Boing family of podcasts, and you can find us all at boingboing.net. You might also like Geek, which is a weekly show with Boing Boing editors Mark Frauenfelder and Dean Putney about stuff they like and also interesting people they bring on. Chris Yates is a polymath. He's a sculptor, an artist, woodworker, cartoonist, entrepreneur, former dog kennel assembler, musician, and much more. You can see his whole bio for the dozens of professions he's been involved with over his life so far. But he's best known right now for his handmade jigsaw puzzles. He's here today to talk about his zigzag path to making a niche for himself. Hey, Chris, thanks for coming on the podcast. Oh, glad to be here, Glenn. I, I missed you at uh, Emerald City Comic Con, but I did see your puzzles at the Topatico booth there, and uh, and I noticed you're you're on this row of things with Topatico, which mostly handles web comics artists, but they also handle other kinds of merchandise and people affiliated with that True. kind of ethos. And so, uh, so how does that fit in at a, at a at a Comic Con? Where do puzzles fit into the the normal attendees' interest and in, and in why they're there? Well, if you make jigsaw puzzles, you sort of quickly figure out that it's kind of you have to be very creative to find venues to sell them at. Because um, there's very few, you know, jigsaw puzzle shows out there, and the the one that I have done was interesting, but I didn't sell very much. So comic cons, as you may have noticed, are not just about comics anymore. And you find, you know, visual artists and musicians and all kinds of people selling their wares there. And you know, I kind of find the people who are going to be interested in these various popular arts may be interested in my jigsaw puzzles too, because they're, you know, something. A little bit more, I don't know, modern than your traditional, you know, print pasted on a piece of plywood and cut up into a grid. I really try to create, you know, fun sculptures you can play with, which I think are visually attractive and, you know, uh, something something a little different that you wouldn't expect to find at a Comic-Con, but you might like it. Yeah, I think that's a great insight, too, is I think people who maybe haven't attended one. And, you know, this is actually the first... Uh, astonishingly, despite me being a geek and a comic lover and everything else, the first Comic Con I've gone to because it's right in my backyard. I live in Seattle, right. and uh, and it was you know it is that panoply of all things that sort of appeal to um, not just I guess science fiction and fantasy, but things sort of surrounding them. And yeah, I mean they're musicians. There's a lot of I mean, of course the core is comic books and comic art, but then there are tons of of music and accessories and merchandise and things that appeal to the same kind of mindset that likes that sort of thing. Right. You're going to find people who are showing up to these conventions who want to get a uh, signature from their favorite voice actor, from their favorite cartoon. And there's people who just want to dress up in a different costume each day. And then there's the people, you know, who are just want to flip through, you know, crates of old comic books, all of the stereotype. Really, um, it's not just the stereotype of a whole bunch of, you know, old fat white guys. It's really pretty diverse. And the Emerald City one, I think it's the third biggest in the country as far as attendance. 
it was fascinating too. Uh, I think the funniest one, of course, was Vandal Eyes. That's two words: Vandal uh-huh. Eyes. Bonnie Burton and uh, Ann Wheaton, TV Will Wheaton's wife, uh, where right. they put uh, googly eyes on things, and there was a crazy line for them. I love how they've created this <laughs> this wonderful thing. But it was that thing: is people interested in graphic? It's funny. It almost say I used to go to the old Seabold uh, Publishing Conference, which was really about you know here's our new linotype uh, image setter, and uh, here's sure. the latest version of Quark Express and PageMaker. But I found there's actually it was weirdly similar. It's um, the Comic Con seemed to me much about graphic communication. Uh, you know, and there's also movies and audio and so forth, but the primary form was graphic communication and people who liked this graphic expression of a particular cultural subtype. So any of the things that were also graphical expressions, like like your art, um, fit into the rubric of, uh, well, I like this kind of thing and I like to look at and then often manipulate things with my hands that are like that. So it, it really felt a part of that whole very uh, neatly. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, you know, I've tried other kinds of shows. You know, I do some art festivals and I've been doing more and more like maker fair type stuff, um, which you're, I'm sure you're familiar with. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, every show has got, you know, I, I can have a sort of certain overlap with the audience. And, you know, some art festivals are really diverse and interesting, like comic conventions. And then some are just kind of like, yeah, it's a bunch of old ladies who, <laughs> you know, are just giving away their stuff. And I show up there trying to make a living and I try to, you know, price my stuff really affordably, but it's handmade. And these people, you know, they're just like, what is this? I don't get it, you know, you know, so, you know, you have to sort of pick your battles. And I find Comic-Cons, not only am I able to sell my stuff, but it's usually a pretty pleasurable experience. Um, the people I work with, as well as the people that are my, you know, fans and acquaintances that I run into at the shows. You, you did a great comic, which was, um, you know, one of your many outputs here is the comic. It was after, I think, San Diego Comic-Con. And there's a multi-panel thing, like, is this free? Is it, it was yeah. all the things, like, here's the questions that I've answered all day. And I realized you're, you're like, you're taking the piss out of people about, like, this, this is, this is a lot of what you get. But, you know, you also, you get mostly people who come, they know what it is, like, oh my God, this is an amazing puzzle. But, but I, right. I, I heard that at the, at the Emerald City one too. Is a lot of people like, wait, what's, what can I have here that doesn't cost anything? Like, no, no, I'm here to make a living partly. That's why I'm here. Yeah, I mean, the bigger shows, people understand that they're, people are there to make a living. But, you know, you do a couple anime expos or something like that, and it's just all, you know, preteens and, you know, teenagers. And, yeah, it's just not my kind of show at all. Is it free is all you hear. I thought they had billions of dollars to spend, those teens. but Yeah, I don't know what they're spending their money on, but not my stuff. Well, I feel like we have to echo back and forth between time. We have to do a time travel episode with you. Sure. Because I think we should talk about what you do now and then go back and, and sort of figure out what your antecedents of it are. Because several people said I should talk to you because I know we have uh, one degree of separation from a million artists and uh-huh. other people now. And what you do is, is kind of sui generis. Like there aren't that many people involved in the specific thing that you do. So tell me your, your, your kind of main thrust of your career right now. What is it? Well, it's just sort of innovating the jigsaw puzzles. And there's a lot of different things that I really like to do. But the, yeah, you're exactly right. When you find yourself you know, in a niche that's very, very narrow, and it seems like most of the other people out there professionally uh, hand-cutting wooden puzzles are retiring or you know, are doing it as a hobby and are mostly sort of older folks, anybody sort of uh, trying to innovate in this area is generally relying on things like laser cutters and CNC machines of various sorts. So it sort of became one of those things like, well, I've got all these disparate interests. So maybe they're not disparate. Maybe they all work together in some ways. But, you know, there's certain things that you can do in your life that you are really interested in, that you really enjoy, but nobody's going to give you any money for it. And then there's certain things you can do with your talents that you're not really that into doing or you don't really like doing, but you can make a lot of money with it. And the jigsaw puzzles for me was sort of that happy medium where I sort of found something I could do on a long-term basis, do it daily, keep it interesting. Um, and people were willing to support me and, you know, slowly give me, you know, money for my craft. Um, so it's not as much as I woke up one day and it's like, I need to, you know, be the best jigsaw puzzle maker in the world. It's just sort of was one of many, many things I've tried that, just sort of worked in the end and it's you know i could have never planned this path well i think a lot of people i think about a jigsaw puzzle they think about you know an inexpensively cardboard backed picture with a thousand pieces that they're going to put on a table and do half of and then walk away from and forget and eventually push back into the box and disgust that's not what you make at all (laughs) no 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 since this is a podcast i should describe these a little bit um generally these are yes the visual nature of the podcast leans itself i'll put links in the show notes too (laughs) (laughs) so yeah essentially um these are you know cut on a machine called a scroll saw which kind of looks like a sewing machine with this tiny little blade 
and I just push uh, sheets of fiberboard through it, which are assembled into sort of layers that form sort of a tray for the puzzle, and then there's all these pieces inside of it. So it's got a little bit more of a sculptural bent right then and there. And then the way that I cut the pieces is often very eccentric with lots of little spirals and knobs and lots and lots of different kinds of pieces that fit together in interesting ways. So it makes it a little bit more challenging than your typical grid cut puzzle, as well as um, the fact that we paint all the different pieces in interesting ways. We can create these different abstract patterns or representational ideas just with the shape and the color of the pieces, not having to rely on pasting a picture of a sailboat on it. So that's the general idea. And then if you look at my site, you can see these crazy sort of multiple level puzzles where I get even more sculptural and build layers of pieces upon each other to create, you know, waterfalls or volcanoes or, you know, just really sort of interesting and challenging, uh, you know, puzzles. <laughs> well, I think one of the one of the best pieces of irony is one of your puzzles that looks like it's the most typical is marked as difficulty 9.3 on a 10 scale, I assume. And it says, beware, exclamation point, exclamation point. And I'm like, but that's the one that like, oh, okay, right. now I'm getting it. All right. It looks like a grid cut, but I'm using the exact same, not the exact same joinery, but very similar joinery on every single, you know, tr triangular and grid piece in there. So it plays on the idea of the traditional puzzle. And then I've got all these colors in there, which don't really help you. By the time you sort of figure out the pattern of the colors, you're pretty much done with the puzzle. That, that's called Quilt of No Return. I'll link to it specifically, but in 201 pieces, but I mean, you probably spend part of your life working on it. And, I, you know, so as I look at these, sometimes, you know, I've got a background in, in uh, art. And I actually, I many years ago, I spent a couple happy weeks with a, with a, a scroll saw cutting out big uh, pieces for a theater production. I spent cool, a lot of time cool, with yeah. one and it was, and uh, it's a fun thing to work with. It was a large scale one. And uh, so I try to deconstruct this. I look at this and I go, how did he make it? And I'm, I'm a little baffled about the steps <laughs> you take between um, conceiving of it, maybe sketching it out, cutting it and then painting it. What order do things happen in to make this? How much, I guess, is happenstance as you're working and how much has to be planned carefully ahead of time? Well, that's a good question. Um, one of the things I like about this art form is I don't have to plan out everything from the get-go. So I found on certain projects I've done where you have to sort of, you know, plan everything to the nth degree at the beginning, then you give yourself no decision-making sort of while you're in the process of creating the art, you get bored. So with the puzzles, I get to make a couple little artistic decisions as I go. And, you know, the more representational puzzles, I may have to develop a template on the computer and trace it with some carbon paper onto the wood. Some of the puzzles, I'll take a pencil and just directly draw the design on the wood. And some really abstract ones, I just sort of make it up as I go. So yeah, you've got the design on the wood, and then you take it out, you sort of rough down, you know, how big your, your puzzle's going to be on a, on a sort of a larger scroll saw or a bandsaw. Then I go to my, uh, my nice DeWalt scroll saw that's got a fancy little, <laughs> you know, hundredth of an inch blade. And you make your entry cut, and so I'm basically cutting out the whole area that's going to be pieces and separating that from the area that's going to form the top of the base. And from there, we do some gluing, where there's some sanding. And then there we do some color coding, which we use some spray paint to sort of show which side is up for the piece mass, the area, the section of wood that's going to be chopped up into smaller pieces. Mm -hmm. With more complicated puzzles, you can even separate parts of the piece mass, color code them differently. So I can sort of say, okay, well, this area is all going to be this color gamut, and this is all going to be this color gamut. And then I chop them up into smaller pieces, and then more sanding, and then we go outside and spray paint. And so um, each piece is, is separately painted at the end of the process, or are there ones in which you... Yeah, after everything's cut, um, you know, we use a little... sanding and cutting. Yeah. yeah, we do use a little bit of spray paint in the interim processes, but that sort of gets sanded off. Mm -hmm. um, but the final paint job happens after all of the cutting and sanding, and then we have to, like, blow each piece off individually because it's going to be sawdust on it. So there's a lot of, lot of very repetitive tasks that we're just doing constantly, you know, hundreds of these little actions a day. I should mention I have an assistant, Emily, who's awesome. So when I say we, that's what, who I'm referring to. Because you've got a production, you can have different things going on, obviously have different things going on at the same time. And I assume you can't sit there with the saw and just cut for eight hours a day because you'd go insane and your hands would fall off also. True, true. Uh, yeah, usually more than four or five hours of cutting is a bad idea. So yeah, we have lots of different processes in the operation 
So we're often waiting for things to glue up or waiting for paint to dry or, you know, waiting for this whole section of pieces to get done so we can do this section of pieces, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I'm looking at like the the Grand Canyon, uh, one of your pieces, 245 pieces. In my head, I'm thinking, is this like a week-long project? I mean, how long does it take to make the, something of that of that scale, which has both a design, like there's actually a figurative thing, has many different colors, and it's and it's so many pieces. How, how long does it take to make that? Uh, I think I got that cut in a weekend. Mm-hmm. But there was probably a good, you know, four to five hours at least of design and tracing all that out. Because that was, you know, it's based on representation of this old, you know, oh, I forget the the U.S., uh, the, you know, the Park Service commissioned all yeah. these great old posters in the in the 20s or 30s of all the national parks it's based on one of those posters but you know i've gotten you know not to be immodest but i've gotten pretty fast and good at this after doing this for you know 10 years now and you figured out the right tools the ones that work best for i mean i guess i should ask you were talking about a few before how many different tools do you now need i mean i know the sanding and finishing is one thing but to cut this out do you have it's not like two or do you need a multiple for each different kind of thing you're doing oh we mostly using just one uh tiny little blade for most of the work mm. and then we've just got a couple you know machines with larger blades to do the rough cutting stuff or stack cutting when you've got you know a large multi-level thing your tiny little blade's not gonna be able to cut a straight line you know through two inches worth of wood so it's a pretty simple operation i mean the wood shop is a one car garage mm-hmm. and it's just full of tables and you know bottoms of boxes that we use as trays for all these puzzles in various states of finish oh it must be the worst thing if there's a piece that goes missing you have a process to make sure that doesn't happen we we have a lot of processes we've developed over the years to avoid losing a piece i think we haven't lost a piece in like three years i mean i'm knocking on wood that's good you have to you have the sign up says no pieces lost in 900 (laughs) you know we really should make one of those that would be funny (laughs) no it's great that's a curse and when you put it up like the next day that's you know yeah i mean it gets reset to zero i can remake pieces but Mm -hmm. when you're dealing with this level of detail you know it's 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 definitely you know not something i enjoy doing i'm curious about the 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 combination of factors here is that you're an artist, clearly an artist. You have, a, you have and you have a huge variety of artistic background. You know, starting at a younger age, you've clearly explored lots of different medium of you know, plastic and uh, static mm-hmm. arts, and um, as well as uh, different kinds of things, like music and, and cartooning. All these different things you've been involved with. So there's, I'm always interested about the intersection between an artistic vision and the commercial one, and then the practical part in the middle of taking your artistic vision into a practical form, which in this case is using the scroll saw in, in part. How, how does that play out for you? How much do you feel like you get to express what you want to artistically in this medium, that it's a match for you mm-hmm. versus you found something that's an, that it's a, a fulfilling way to make a living? Well, yeah, I think um, it goes back to sort of my childhood. You know, I was definitely inspired by a lot of different art forms. You know, I wasn't just into reading comic books or I wasn't just into like acting. And, you know, some of my sort of heroes growing up were more kind of the uh, ringleaders of a creative operation rather than a specific cartoonist or an actor, sort Mm. of like people like uh, Jim Henson and Tim Burton, um, you know, Nightmare Before Christmas. It just blew my mind when I first saw that. Oh, yeah. Um, And like, you know, the early films of Terry Gilliam and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So it was kind of the people who had their fingers in a lot of different creative things and also were capable of creating a business out of it. And I think even at a young age, I sort of realized the value of these people who sort of had their singular vision and were stubborn enough and talented enough to sort of see it through and get out there and get to collaborate with all kinds of interesting and amazing people over the years. And so I I think I sort of wanted to do that kind of thing more originally. And then as I started to do more collaborative stuff, especially in college and then getting out into the real world when I moved to Colorado, I realized that if I kind of wanted the, the serious control over my own work, I sort of had to do something that was a little bit more, you know, something you can do in your garage rather than, you know, have twenty a staff of 20 people. So, yeah, I think uh, the woodworking and then eventually puzzles just became sort of something that I felt I had sort of complete ownership of artistically and the business just sort of evolved organically on its own. And I didn't really ever sit down and be like, this is my business plan and this is how I'm going to eventually quit my day job and do this for a living. 
Let's pause for a moment so I can tell you about one of this week's sponsors, Indiegogo. If you listen to this podcast regularly, you know that crowdfunding is one of the bases on which all this independence relies. And Indiegogo is part of that revolution. They've helped crowdfund projects as disparate as the Nikola Tesla Museum Project for Awesome, Black Girls Code, the world's most compact e-vehicle, and a baby. Indiegogo is the largest global crowdfunding platform, which I'll tell you more about in a second. They let people around the world raise funds for any idea. They've hosted over 100,000 campaigns since they launched in 2008. They distribute millions of dollars every week around the world. So what differentiates Indiegogo? Well, there's a few factors. First of all, they decide how you want to raise money. You can choose flexible funding, which lets you keep all the funds you raise, even if you don't meet your goal. That's what App Camp for Girls did, and they far exceeded their goal. But this can let you achieve partial steps if you don't need all of the money to make something happen. Secondly, there's no application process or a waiting period. You can launch the campaign immediately. There's no review necessary. And finally, Indiegogo welcomes a diversity of campaigns which can span creative, cause-related, and entrepreneurial projects. Some crowdfunding sites restrict you to one of those areas. Indiegogo works globally, lets you start projects right away, and if you choose flexible funding, keep whatever you raise. This flexibility is one of the things that characterizes Indiegogo. Just as one example, the Browers, parents who felt helpless when their son had an accident and they couldn't interpret the machines in the hospital. This experience motivated the couple to raise $1.6 million on Indiegogo, and they developed Scanadu, a tool that helps them interpret medical information. As a listener of the new Disruptors, you can get a discount off your fees by going to tnd.indiegogo. That's TND, like the new Disruptors, .indiegogo.com to get 25% off your fees. Whatever your passion is, it's time to stop thinking about it, and it's time to start doing it on Indiegogo. Visit tnd.indiegogo.com for 25% off your fees. And now back to the program. Yeah, I was wondering about that because people often when they're in some kind of, you know, like quirky field like podcasting or something where it's like <laughs> right. there aren't a ton of people who make, you know, a huge living from it uh, or there's almost nobody involved in it. There's like little things that push you one way or the other. So you do a thing and you're like, oh, someone – bought that or wow i'm getting a lot of praise for that thing what if i do another thing like that was were there i mean you say you didn't have a business plan but were there defining moments where you said maybe this direction is where the world is pushing me because that seems to be where i can express myself and there seems to be a money spigot there as well yeah well i first started doing you know uh you know art festivals and craft fairs in 2002 you know about a year after i moved out here and i was sort of selling these these, you know, uh, wooden map sculptures I call terraforms, which are sort of the genesis of the puzzles, only you can't play with them as much. It's just sort of a, a pretty sculptural topo map of anywhere in the world. Mm. And so I was sort of, you know, making those at night. Uh, my first couple jobs, I was like a technical director, first at a uh, video production studio and then a uh, portrait photography studio. And those were pretty, you know, intense jobs. And, you know, I'd come home and work through the night and work on the weekends, then do a couple craft fairs every, you know, holiday season, I would start to sell a few things. And so then I would just, okay, maybe I'm going to get a day job that's more <laughs> just like eight hours and it's, I'm not salaried. I don't have to worry about it after I get off of work um, or I'm not a manager. And so I you know, got a job at like a sign shop and, you know, printmaking shop. And I was like, you know what, I'm selling a little bit more and I'm doing this online comic now. This is like 04, 05. And people are starting to buy these puzzles online. So I'm like, maybe I need a little bit more time for myself. So it's a very gradual kind of thing. Like you get another part-time job and then you reduce your hours on that slowly. And then it just sort of, um, it was just a, a really good string of, you know, decreasing my responsibility at somebody else's place of employment and in increasing my own responsibility for where I wanted to go with my life. That's a pretty gradual process. It's kind of neat. I mean, I've talked to people who have, they've had really intense jobs and that there's that reaction at the end of the day that either they've been squeezed dry and they don't have anything left or the job is really intense and the reaction to it is, oh, man, I need to do something that's my own, that's mm -hmm. separate, that's creative. And um, uh, it seems like you had kind of dials you could adjust there where if it was too intense, you turn that down a little bit, were able to turn it up and then slowly one went down to zero and the other went up to 10, which is pretty neat. Yeah, it was it was really good. And, you know, I was also really lucky, you know, moving to the Denver Boulder area from, you know, being out east and, you know, you know, having a degree from RISD looks pretty good for anybody who has heard of the school. So compared to my friends who just moved to Brooklyn or L.A. or something and were had a real hard time finding creative jobs, 
I was kind of like a little bit more of a big fish in a smaller pond out here. And you didn't move to Portland, which was probably a good move given the economy and uh, and everything also. is It seemed like – I mean I, Portland has 40,000 cartoonists in it now. I believe it's the largest profession. Yeah, <laughs> Portland's to- totally cool, but I kind of – I kind of like, you know, living out here. I have very few friends who are actually artists out here. Most of my friends are engineers or restaurateurs or what have you. Um, Because, you know, it's like all my, you know, friends I deal with in the industry are artists and what have you. So it's kind of nice to have a little bit of diversity in your home life. Well, I want to talk about um, uh, RISD a bit, the Rhode Island School of Design, for folks who haven't heard of it. And, um, sure. you know, I went to uh, – uh, I was an undergraduate at Yale in the, um, in the art school there, which was very tiny as an undergraduate thing, bigger as a graduate program, but dealt with folks from RISD um, across uh, mm-hmm. I mean, of all my entire career. And RISD is a special place, I think. There's also um, – oh, what's the school? Cranbrook in, uh, mm-hmm. in Michigan. There's a few places like that. Uh, art, it's not the Art Institute. It's the uh, – in Pasadena, there's a school. Oh, uh, Cal Arts? Yeah. I think yeah, I think so. And there's there's places where you find people, and um, the schools, the art, some art schools, uh, as with most disciplines, they steamroller people and they shape them or try to turn either the people come in or orient that way, or when they go out, they're sort of squeezed into a mold. And RISD produces uh, unique people. Everybody is entirely different except us, right? No, they're all, <laughs> we're all different, not me. Uh, sure, but but uh, I wonder during that experience. You started with you at uh, in your bio. You talk about people who look at your bio. You have a lot of different things you're able to do when you were in uh, the high school age. Uh, it had the benefit of a place uh, of Choate Rosemary Hall that has so many kinds of artistic ways to express yourself. Which which was a fantastic place. I probably honestly learned more from Choate than I did from RISD as far as art. But I got oh, that's fascinating. Well, you know, you just have you're when you're a teenager, you're a little bit more formative, and you're not allowed, not required to settle down yet either. Yeah, and you know, I I did all these crazy things. Like I was, I was, you know, the head DJ at the radio station. I played bass in the jazz band. You know, I ran my own comedy magazine. I, you know, the, directed and wrote my own plays and made movies and what have you. I was like the kid from Rushmore, you know, in that Wes Anderson movie. <laughs> but then, you know, near my senior year, when I started trying to decide where to go to school, and my favorite teacher, Mr. Bradford, there, who happened to also go to Yale for sculpture, and I Ooh. taught there for a while, he told me, Chris, you know. You try to do everything at once, you're never going to be good at anything. You know, you got to really focus in on one or two things if you really want to, you know, make it a career. And so Choate was sort of, I got to try everything out. And then at RISD, I got to sort of, you know, hone myself and also get honed by the machine that is the school because it's, mm-hmm. kind, of, it's kind of like a boot camp at first, you know? Every freshman who gets in there, they're like, oh, yeah, I was the best artist in my high school. I got the art prize. And then the teachers are like, you know, yeah, like, yeah. whatever. Everybody here was the best artist at their high school. You are, you guys are now, you know, at the bottom and we're going to, you know, build you back up. That's, yeah. Well, that's where I wonder about the, the specialty is, you know, that you kind of – you gravitate towards sculpture and mm-hmm. uh, the wood shop, which is I think um, – I don't think people associate that with – I mean even in the the broader world of art, like working with wood is actually a fairly a rare task I think. It's often associated with craftsmanship as opposed mm-hmm. to artistry. I, and I think that changes. I think we're seeing a lot more exploration of materials, uh, sculptural materials, especially as uh, as these more advanced tools like laser cutters and so forth mm-hmm. let people express themselves with less specific uh, manual skill or training but without reducing ne- necessarily the artistic potential. I mean I don't want to down – I know I, I'm sure you're in the same boat. Like, I don't want to talk down right. the fact that maker scale tools or, or industrial tools let people have access to materials that were previously required specialties to use or you had to direct other people to do it if you didn't mm-hmm. gain them yourselves. But I'm still interested what drove you towards, say, working with wood as opposed to other medium. Like how did that – how were you shaped to, to go that way? Was it finding a, a, a unique area that people weren't exploring as fully or did it just call to you? Um, I think one of the main appeals to me about woodworking is the immediacy of it. You can really just design something, cut it, glue it, nail it, Mm. screw it together really fast. And the material is also fairly cheap compared to, say, if I was going to be making bronze sculpture all day. You know, I I sort of started off more on the the bigger scale doing, like, set design and doing a lot of uh, tech theater. And so I was sort of building large things quickly which is the whole goal of tech theater, and cheaply, that you know you don't have much of a budget. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was making some sort of environmental installations. I had this series of you know staircases that sort of went nowhere and went into themselves that were you know life size that you could sort of walk up and into and what have you. And I was also messing around with metal quite a bit too. Blacksmithing and welding is also really fun because there's also a real 
sort of immediate connection between, you know, what your hands are doing and what the material's doing right in front of you. And you can just sort of witness that change in the material so quickly. And as you develop more of a vocabulary with different tools and how to use your hand and how to design from various teachers and inspirations, you just sort of become more and more excited about like just going into your, your toy shop basically and just playing with your toys <laughs> and making new toys. Um, it seems like there's a one of a kindness too to this, the, the different mm -hmm. kinds of disciplines you're talking about is when you do cast, when you're casting in bronze, you can learn all the skills, but boy, do you need a lot of equipment and a lot of space. And if you want to make multiples, it's a whole thing. Or if you want to cast a certain kind of material, there, you have to send it off. You may not have the skills to do that. Or even, um, you know, I was trained as a graphic designer and mm -hmm. I loved it because of some of that immediacy because I started in the laser printer era. And before that, it wasn't that, you know, I worked as a typesetter before that, but you, in the, in the laser printer DTP era, it's like I do mm -hmm. something, I print it out. I have the immediacy of feeling a physical thing, even though it's two-dimensional and flat. But the but woodworking and welding, we talked about this. I'm like, oh, you can make a one-of-a-kind thing on your own that can be very sophisticated and doesn't require necessarily the participation of other – of like an industrial process or other mm -hmm. people that you have to hand it off to. Right. So uh, one of my jobs while I was at RISD was I was one of the foundry assistants. And while I used the foundry mostly for welding and blacksmithing, mm -hmm. there was a whole bronze and uh, an aluminum casting facility there. Oh, that's super cool. And so there was usually a, a weekly pour, and you'd have, you know, usually about 15 people on hand, and, you know, two people would be in the space suits, so you could go into the, you know, the furnace and get out the crucible that's got 1,600-degree, you know, molten metal, and poured it into all these molds that have been painstakingly worked on for the last six weeks. <laughs> yes. And sometimes you, if you, you know, especially for the more oh. complex molds, you're going into the foundry twice a day for six weeks to add layers of slurry. You know, it's a, it's a whole, it's a whole process. And then you have to have this whole team of people come along, pour your really expensive bronze and your success rate's probably going to be somewhere around 60 to 70%. Oh my God. So you're, yeah. Which isn't mm -hmm. that great for something you've worked on that long. And meanwhile, I, you know, I can make, you know, a whole bunch of really, you know, things a lot quicker with other techniques. So, you know, glass blowing is interesting too. I tried that out. I was going to say, I didn't see glass blowing on the list and I was thinking this is in the same school I of did, things. I did it for uh, <laughs> six months in Australia when I was a senior in college. Oh, okay. There we it go. It was really fun, but you know, it's definitely a team operation. Yeah. Um, the fragility of it, the, the sort of, the, the timing of it. It's really interesting. And there's a lot of sort of chemistry that goes into it. Um, but ultimately I don't think it, I don't think I was maybe as good at it naturally. And there's mm -hmm. a lot of other people who are. So sometimes I just sort of let that, you know, I'm like, it's an interesting skill to have, but it's not something I really need to do. I want to dig in on that a second too, because this is, you know, this is one of the things that I think the internet does to people and digital technology and, and new tools, like new tools that make actual things like 3d printers and so mm -hmm. forth is they sometimes I think provide a false sense that anyone can master anything immediately. Yeah. And your career would would be is it's not a refutation of it because you're clearly a quick study and you've tried different mm -hmm. things. And I'm a quick study. I like to pick stuff up and and I know how quickly I can become an amateur <laughs> at it and then I can right. see how long it takes. But you have this depth of of many years even before leaving RISD. You spent many years in specific areas and then over time have done more and more. And I mm -hmm. I wonder if there's um if you've seen this as well that there's maybe not facileness, but it's this idea that that uh, expertise doesn't count as much because the internet and, and new tools make everything possible. But but I think having gone through what you've done, it's not this that, you know, well, I paid my dues, but it would seem to me that you've earned all this subtlety and nuance that you can do because you spent all this time in there. Do, do you see that? Do you fight the, that yeah. sort of trend that talking about uh, expertise in that way? Yeah. I mean, I don't think, yeah, having a, you know, 3D modeling program that you can figure out and sending something to a 3D printer. I mean, is ever going to replace, you know, sculpting by hand. And there's, you know, there's pros and cons for it. But I think in my sort of history of trying different things out, I think uh, having a problem to solve, like I just want to dive into this mm. sort of medium and figure it out and just give it a shot. And I may not be the best at it, but you know what? I'm going to work really hard to do my best for this animation class I'm taking, even though that's not my main focus. I just want to see if I can do this. Mm -hmm. And so there's that kind of appeal that like sometimes you're sort of setting up a challenge for yourself um, and you're not as worried about like, is this going to be as impressive as something I did in this art form that I've been practicing for longer? 
I think it's it's more just the uh, the appeal of you know just trying something out and because you know life is short why not try all these different things out <laughs> well, well i guess i want to push the message and I, mean, I don't know how many of the listeners to this show are are like in college or you know art school or thinking about that but people go to go back into study disciplines from you know the, a certificate program or a course mm-hmm. up to you know four years or a master's program or, or whatever later in life now as well especially with, with the economy and people realigning what they're doing themselves and and i found from my art education i i started really in design in high school, I think a little bit like you. I did a million things and then refined into graphic design. Ultimately, was not the profession I followed, but I Mm -hmm. feel like my brain was shaped around – I didn't get a degree in art so I could wave a degree in art around. And I think you Mm -hmm. know, a place like RISD especially, you don't go there so you can – it's useful. The name indicates what you learn from it. I mean what most people learn there. But the idea of being able to spend this intensive time in studying problems and solutions, Mm -hmm. like how do you work through these artistic situations with Mm -hmm. the practice? aspects and produce something that's meaningful and that maybe you find meaning in, maybe other people find meaning in. Yeah. And I, I found, you know, I, you know, it's not a cheap place to go to college and it's, I'm sure it's even more now than it was back mm-hmm. in, you know, the late nineties. Um, but I really was wanting to get as many technical skills out of uh, the school as possible. That's one of the reasons I chose the sculpture department mm. is that it, it had the, the fewest sort of core requirements because they really wanted to encourage you to take electives in other disciplines too. Because the the you know sculpture can be anything these this, these days. You know, it's not just a bronze statue anymore. It can be performance art, or it could be you know have aspects of video or sewing or you know interactive elements. So I did that so I could you know pursue things like you know photography and video and animation. Um, and some other stuff. I did a lot of uh, electronic music classes over at Brown University, which is a sister school. Mm-hmm. Um, I did a couple uh, tech theater classes. I took a couple uh, these words, uh, playwriting classes with some fantastic playwrights up at Brown. And those were all really interesting. And, you know, I had no real plans of putting on my own play at that point. But it was just a really sort of interesting um, alternative way to use my brain from what I was doing in the sculpture core classes and having these you know, sections on wood and metal and casting and sewing and what have you. Well, it seems like you've taken so many of these different aspects and kind of brought them into what you do. Mm-hmm. Well, I should mention too is that you, uh, you mentioned your cartoon at one point as well, and that was you know also something you did. And also, you defined a different art form, and I know other people do something a little bit like this. But your Reaper Graphics, which you did, was it two thousand? Four to 2013. Uh, yeah, something like that. That that wasn't, you know, I mean, and not to, there's so many web comics out there and people define a particular artistic style. You used photographs as part of the, cart- the comic style, which, yes, yes. which isn't, like I say, isn't unique, but you you kept it up and built this over a long period of, of time. You brought your own kind of uh, stamp onto that as well. Yeah, I don't really recommend it for anybody. You'll get, if you start a photo comic, a lot less people are going to look at it than a drawn comic just because of a strange bias. There are a couple exceptions to this rule. A Softer World by Emily and Joey. Uh, they've been going for longer than I have. But yeah, I, I, I'm not as good at, you know, I've done all of these different, you know, art forms. But the one thing I'm not that great at is illustration in general. Oh, me too. I hate it. I wish I could draw. I, I know. And a lot of art, you know, a lot of art classes are sort of like the oh. drawing is the core oh, of all arts. And I'm kind of like, yeah, well, I can sort of see that. But there's a lot of. But you can. I've seen, you, can, you have some. You can draw. I can get too. by. Yeah. I can get by. But anyway, I was, you know, I've always had a strong interest in photography. And, and I always liked sort of doing comedy writing. I did some improv and things like that over the years. And I just sort of fell into web comics in, a, in another weird way. I had a friend from high school who I did improv with, and he was my comedy writing partner. And, you know, he was just sort of emailed me one day, and he's like, hey, I'm doing this thing called a web comic. This is like, you know, 2003 or something. And I'm like, web comics, you know. And then I started following his site and, you know, looked at his link list and, you know, clicked on a couple. I was like, Hey, this is kind of funny. You know, after a while I was like, Hey, I could do this. You know, it's just sort of a joke. And on this form, well, everyone was trying things too, even though like 2003, 2004, the form wasn't established. There were plenty of people doing web comics, but no one had said, and I, th- I think it's settled in a bit more what people expect now, but it was totally open then. Yeah. It was pretty experimental and weird and everybody sort of just seemed to be on the same level and just trying to figure it out. Whereas these days it feels a little bit more clicky and uh, yeah, there's a hierarchy to it that may be, you know, imaginary, who knows. 
Um, but yeah, back then it was just kind of like, hey, I'll try this and I'll make a comic about me talking to this giant photocopier, <laughs> which I worked with every day at this large format printing place. And I, I made it as a joke. Like I thought this is, is going to be so bad. Nobody's going to look at it. It's going to be funny for the sake of badness. And to my surprise, people are like, hey, you should keep doing this. This is weird, you know? And, and I said, my friends dress up in weird Halloween costumes and they eventually <laughs> became characters and, you know, various inanimate uh, sculptures I had lying around became also characters in the cartoon. And it was just kind of one of those things that I just did on a lark. And as I said before, it's like something I didn't mind doing and people seem to enjoy reading it. And as a consequence, I got more people to look at my website in general and possibly, hey, buy a puzzle or a toy or, you know, support me and come by at a convention or something. So let me take a break to thank New Relic, one of this week's sponsors. They asked me to give a big data thank you to all the data nerds out there who are building all the stuff that we know and love. They asked me to give you a shout out to thank the software geeks, the code jockeys, those brave few who see things differently. High fives to all of you rule breakers and disruptors who work late nights and wrangle the code. The whole internet thanks you. Here's New Relic's role and this whole big worldwide web ball of wax we're in. They help everyone's software work better. And nowadays, if you're in any business, you're in the software business. Software powers our apps, it runs our databases, it manages our accounts, and it runs e-commerce sites and small programs. When software breaks, everyone loses. New Relic helps improve your software performance so your users have a better experience and your business is more successful. How's that for a win-win? New Relic is the all-in-one web application performance management tool. It lets you see your performance from the end-user experience through servers and down to the line of application code. This helps you produce an effective, consistent, and well-running system. So visit newrelic.com, N-E-W-R-E-L-I-C.com slash disruptors for a special offer and to find out more about its web application performance management tool. And now back to the podcast. Oh, that's great. So it wound up uh, uh, producing awareness of you in a way that maybe mm -hmm. uh, just pushing your specific work wouldn't have uh, had the same effect. Right. I mean, not to say it's a giant ad for me. Um, you know, I tried to make it interesting and fun, but yeah. It was... Oh, yeah, yeah. But it, but it's that nice – it's an epiphenomenon, right? It wasn't your intent, but because mm -hmm. you enjoyed doing it and it also helped, then hey, then that's, a, that's the motivation on those days where like I don't have it in me to do it. It's like, well, okay, I'm going to do this because people want to see it and I'm, I'm getting a response and it's part of the shape of what you do. Right. And another uh, convenient aspect of making a, you know, semi-autobiographical comic is that it serves as a diary. So if you forget something that you did, you can just go back through the archive and be like, oh, right. Yeah, that's when I saw, you know, Karen or something back in May 6th, oh 2009. Um, that's hilarious. It's but I had to end it because I just sort of ran out of silly things I could do taking pictures of myself, you know, it's just. I made something like eight or nine hundred of them, and that's a lot. <laughs> that's huge. Well, and I, you know, I should point out too is that you know when you say there is a bias towards certain kinds of things, but you have folks like Ryan North, oh yeah, who uh, dinosaur comics, which people, God, do people love that guy? Not that you're not great too, Chris, but oh boy, no, Ryan, people... <laughs> Ryan's nobody can you know beat Ryan as he's, far as just he's the, he's the genius of some of his ideas. You know, people just yeah. I mean, he's it's funny. He's he's obviously the nicest guy in the world. Oh yeah, there's a lot of nicest guys in the world. But you know, dinosaur comics. I'll I'll link it in the show notes. And I'm sure a lot of listeners know about it, but it's the same art every day for the entire – it's like every kind of weird day. dinosaur clip art for however many – I think 13 or 14 years now at this point. Yeah, and it's great. And it's his writing that gets you. Or, you know, David Lynch did a comic. I don't think he still does The Angriest Dog in the World, sort of pre-web, <laughs> that was just the same panel with like some non sequiturs or XKCD. I mean, Randall Monroe has turned not being able to draw into a style. He's developed a drawing mm -hmm. style that's sort of almost around his initial inability – to draw, so there's something to be said for like the, the 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 being able to use a graphic expression technique that works for you when you have something to say. Yeah, I mean, one of the first people I sort of teamed up with in web comics is uh, Dave Malky, who you know you interviewed yeah. before, and we both sort of came together because we were both kind of like tiptoeing into this world of well, do we really want to try to do this as a real thing? And we did our first show together in New York, and I think. 2006 or something like that and we had never even met in person before and we drove across the country to go do a show oh and made $300 <laughs> and we're like oh my god this is amazing also and the nicest guy in the world All yeah the well guys. we we sort of came together because his style is also you know this mashup of this weird you know 19th century sort of uh, you know carvings from various old periodicals and you know modern humor 
So we were both kind of, you know, a little bit anomalous compared to most traditional comics, which are, you know, beautifully drawn. Well, I love you two guys, too, because so David's become practically a, uh, a you know, an expert on he's, he, you know, he's the expert in the movie Stripped that just came out. Yeah. Talking about uh, the history of engraving and the transition to comics, early comics history, because he's now spent so much time and has so like a library of books from that period. So he's accidentally become an expert on this really interesting and actually completely relevant era in development. You're using techniques that date back hundreds or thousands. I mean, I know True. some thousands years modern tool versions where you're doing something that's practically archaic but Uh a modern expression of it using the most modern tools you have available to you that's a really good point glenn because you know i when i sort of fell into jigsaw puzzle making because i screwed up one of these map sculptures one day (laughs) and chopped it into pieces because i was really mad (laughs) at it and then i was like oh i can make a jigsaw puzzle and so i just sort of art out of anger it's very good yeah so i just started doodled you know weird squiggly pieces and then as I started making this, I started to learn about the actual history of jigsaw puzzles because, you know, when I was a kid, there was, you know, at our grandparents' house in New Jersey, there'd be some typical cardboard puzzles strewn out on the table, you know, every summer weekend. And they were kind of fun, but I was never like really into it. So it wasn't until like two or three years into actually commercially making puzzles that I actually started to really become fascinated about the history of these things and you know, eventually I went to this thing called the Puzzle Parley, which was kind of interesting mm. to hear all these other panelists and other cutters talk about, you know, the history of stuff. But again, it was kind of a slow weekend for sales. But, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's I think it's um, the, the rediscovery of older art forms. Uh, uh, or the reinvention of them because you uh-huh. didn't come out of the tradition. You weren't – I'm sure at RISD you got to study with with folks who had decades or you know, 50, 60 years of, of sculptural background. But mm-hmm. many people come to the path that you're in where they're like uh, – uh, Oh, I know. Like I've met some linotype op- – modern linotype operators and they've refurbished mm. machines or whatever and they did find some 60, 70, 80-year-old people who taught them how to run the thing. But you're, you have a, a broken tradition in the sense that you reinvented this from the sculptural basis as opposed to being, oh, my grandfather used to work at the puzzle factory. Yeah, well, the funny thing is I had – before you know, getting into the puzzles, I had pretty much learned all the skills I needed to make mm-hmm. puzzles from doing other sort of woodworking activities and other – you know just basic problem solving. I mean, making puzzles is a puzzle in itself. It's a big problem solving, you know, adventure every time you start cutting. So it's kind of weird because I had, I had the right skill set, And then, you know, I've definitely picked up some stuff from the tradition, like uh, curio pieces, the, you know, tradition of having certain strangely shaped pieces that will be sort of your signature or evoke different things within the puzzle but a lot of the other techniques are more modern. Like I use spray paint almost all the time for my puzzles and I'm not as much getting, you know, stuff from the graffiti world, but more from like stencil artists from people like Shepard Fairey. Yeah. Um, you know, the guy who did Obey and Andre the Giant and the Obama posters and what have you. He was at RISD at the very, I started right as he was getting out of there. And I remember he used to sell his, you know, hand silkscreen t-shirts outside the mailroom and I was just like, oh, this is really cool, you know. <laughs> I would see his spray paint, you know, stuff all over town. And so, yeah, I sort of I get inspiration from a lot of different weird places. And I, I like to respect the history of, you know, jigsaw puzzle making. But if I'm not really turning it on its head and making it something my own, then it's not really that interesting for me. If I can't not just innovate, you know, with the basic concept of my my puzzle work, but with every puzzle, I kind of want to push something a little farther and try this thing out or try this new kind of joinery and, you know, then that informs the next thing you make the next day, just like, just like anything. Well, and you, and you've extended into different dimensions too, is I know that three-dimensional puzzles aren't new, but the way in which you're making them, uh, you know, I think these are pretty, pretty much, uh, there's nothing quite like what you're doing in three dimensions. Yeah, I would like to think so. Um, and that's again, you know, taking stuff I learned from the more sort of sculpture work that I did and just applying it to the jigsaw puzzle work. And But one of the things that does take time is just getting good enough to trust myself that I can actually pull this off. Because the more <laughs> yeah. pieces and the more complicated you make a puzzle, the the more dangerous it is because, you know, there's very little room for error when you're cutting these things. And often if I do screw up something major, I just throw the thing out and start over. Um, so with the smaller puzzles, there's less investment in it. And the bigger puzzles, you know, I kind of have to know that, okay, I've got enough experience that I can pull this crazy thing off and not be two days into it and screw it up like I would five years ago. 
Well, this is the perfect transition into the issue of scale because uh, obviously as one person, you're limited by you know your actual physical ability. Mm-hmm. You can't, I mean this is a nice thing partly about like 3D printers and some of the new technology that's out where you can say like, all right, I'm going to uh, set that up in the 2D printer or 2D uh, cutter and walk away while it does its thing and then work on this other thing. It's like, no, you're in there with your hands and you've reached mm-hmm. a point, the fact that you have an assistant is fantastic. So you're at a scale where you've got someone else who can work alongside and handle part of the tasks. But I know that in 2000, 2010, you took a different leap. You went into actual mass production, which was a change for you. Did you have any trepidation about about shifting that direction? Did you worry it would affect your other work, or was it a natural outgrowth of of where the, the point you'd reached about your yeah, physical I, I th- limits? I think uh, outgrowth is a better uh, word than shift because it was in addition to everything I was mm-hmm. doing, you know, with the woodworking. Um, so the whole story of the production puzzles is, uh, I think, about it was like 07 or 08. Um, one of the folks from Seco is large jigsaw puzzle company in Boston, um, which they probably have about 20% of the North American puzzle market. So they're oh, pretty large. Okay. Mm-hmm. They approached me and said, Hey, you know, we've seen your puzzles. We think they're incredible. You know, we've been trying to innovate our own stuff in house and it hasn't been going so great because we mostly sell more traditional stuff. Um, you may have heard of Thomas Kincaid, the painter of light, <laughs> Uh, they they have his license, <laughs> yes. and that is still the number one selling puzzle yes. uh, of theirs. And so they were trying to, you know, move a little bit away from the cheese ball puzzle image and try to get some more funky stuff out there. And so at first I was kind of like, well, I don't know. This may cheapen what I do. And also, you know, I know they're saying they want to get away from the cheese ball stuff, but if my puzzles are on the same shelf as Thomas Kincaid, it may not be the best for me. But they, you know, we worked really hard you know, for several years on the first series, um, really trying to make these as interesting and different as possible. And they're all based on my original puzzle designs. And I would, you know, do these spray paint samples for every single piece and send them all to Boston and they would put them in the high res scanner. And so it was, uh, it was a real labor actually. And the packaging, we try to make really funky and they've done pretty well. I mean, it hasn't made me a millionaire yet, but we've done the second series, and now there's a third series out that's actually got two layers in each one called Double Trouble, and those are doing pretty well. So, you know, they've had faith in me. And, you know, once I we sort of pick a design and I get the spray paint samples done, it's, the ball's really in Seco's court. Mm-hmm. And they take care of all the dealing with the factories and sending me the proofs and getting them into stores and marketing them. And then they give me money. Well, that's what I was wondering. If that—that's the—I um, had a boss years ago who mm-hmm. said he, two things. One, he said databases, and he was right. And the other was—he <laughs> was totally right. I still curse him to this day. I was like, I'm not interested in databases. The future. <laughs> he said this the 19, early 1990s. The future is databases. And he was right. right. But the other thing was make money while you sleep. Obviously, and that's an old uh, adage. And you can only make money while you were awake and working. And this gets you into somebody else is doing all this for you. It sounds like you're happy with the creative process and the distribution and, and the rest of it. I mean, almost at some level, if you get a decent return on it, even if it's not a fantastic return, it's uh-huh. money that uh, if it paid for your time and it, and it has a continuing stream, it seems like this is this is the dream is that something you don't actually have to physically handle every copy of is doing something for you. True. Yeah. Stuff like that. You know, Topodico taking care of distributing anything that's not handmade by me mm-hmm. helps with that. Um, but at the core of my business, people really seem to appreciate and want the handmade stuff. I mean, in this day and age, as we all know, more and more stuff is machine made and less and less people are practicing these old skills. So even though I could make something comparable with a laser cutter and we could shoot out a hundred of the same design and make it look pretty close to my original stuff, I don't think people are going to react to it in the same way. And in fact, when I've done more heavy experimenting with, okay, everything's die cut and laser cut this month, and look at all these new experiments, everybody, I'm not selling as much as I would be if I was in the wood shop. So the real way to scale this up, as I was just talking about this uh, with my neighbor, is I need to hire apprentices and teach them how to cut like me. Mm. If I really want to keep this business going the way that I think it needs to go, because there's a gazillion people out there who are going to be more skilled with the computer and laser cutting and what have you and let them do whatever they want to do. But if I really want to keep my vision going, it's kind of like I got to be like stave puzzles, which is the only other really uh, multi-person puzzle 
company that's all hand cut in America. Mm-hmm. They're based out of Vermont. It becomes the studio of Chris Yates with right. With um, yeah. But that's interesting. And, but I imagine that. I mean, this is such a labor intensive, intensive thing. So it sounds like when you say that, and not to get into your sales figures or anything, but it sounds mm-hmm. like you're constrained. You do have a supply constraint then. Yeah, that's the choke. That's the choke point. Is yeah, how much then, I can cut through there uh, on the main machine because I can teach people how to glue puzzles. I can teach people how to sand them, how to paint them, how to put them together, how to package them up, um, even how to you know in, do inventory, photograph them, take care of online sales. But the one, th- it's very hard to teach somebody immediately how to cut as well as I can. But what I could do is you know train somebody who's interested in learning the art and have them start out on the real simple stuff. And then eventually, hopefully with my kind of guidance, they could get closer to my point than I did just sort of evolving, you know, on my own, just trying to figure things out. That's you can be Willy Wonka and find your, (laughs) but in the, in the grand scheme of things, I'd rather, you know, keep the operation fairly small and simple because I don't, I don't want, to have too I don't want to be too much of a businessman. I kind of I like being an artist, you know. Well, and you're in an area. I mean, I've talked to a lot of different kinds of entrepreneurs and artists, and and you're in an area where you're not going to suffer from cheap knockoffs because the reason people are coming to you is because <laughs> of the specific experience. People have tried. People have tried, but it shows, right? They buy it. They're disappointed, and yeah. Actually, at the, at the uh, Seattle Comic Con, there was multiple people who came over to us who had obviously seen my work in previous years. Mm. They're like, "There's somebody imitating your puzzles." And they're, they're pointing over to somewhere in the hall. And it's like, you know, it's like, oh, it, I, they're not nearly as good as yours. I can't believe somebody stole your idea. And, you know, it's like we eventually <laughs> find the guy and he's kind of imitating me. But, you know, it's it's kind of, kind of crude work compared to what I can do. And, you know, when I sort of confront him with my sort of name tag behind my yeah. <laughs> back, I'm like, so where'd you get the idea? And he's like, oh, yeah, well, my friend told me about this guy, Chris Yates. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, at least he's crediting <laughs> I I think it's great. Anybody, especially young people, if they want to get into, you know, playing with scroll saw, especially making jigsaw puzzles. Awesome. Just don't don't copy my puzzles like completely. You know, (laughs) people have to evolve their own style. People will find for something like this. I think they have to evolve their own style because they can't just rip you off and be cheaper or identical or something like that because it it shows, especially because from what you've described, there's a really strong hand sale part of this. The fact that you go to comic cons, that you that you're trying to connect with people Mm -hmm. and that people want to see it in person because something that's expensive, they're going to want to get a better look at. So because of that connection, I would think that's the hard thing to duplicate as well as maybe the skill set required. Yeah, yeah. So you really have to develop a connection with your customers when you're trying to uh, sell and, you know, promote these kind of things. And, you know, social media definitely helps in sending off personalized emails to everybody who orders something, handwritten notes in each package that, you know, comes from me. Yeah, that's that's really important because you're not just selling the product. You're really selling like, okay, this is something special that I got from a an artist that I admire and respect. It's not just an object. Oh, that sense of the authentic. People want that so badly right now. Right. It explains so much of the Kickstarter campaign. I just did a book for the magazine and did a couple book uh, events recently. And I realized I had misjudged one thing. I didn't, uh, the book isn't by me. It's a collection of work by people who wrote for the magazine. And sure. I edited it and put it together. And I d- underestimated the fact that people wanted a signature. I didn't think about having that as an option or a nameplate. And I didn't, wasn't going to touch the books because it's an anthology. And I, you know, I wrote the forward and I underestimated what the pull of the authentic was. And I, and next time I have to think about it, not just for myself, but even maybe I get all the signatures of all the contributors and reproduce it in interesting fashion that's part of the book that's a special thing because people want the connection and and um and uh, that is that is what kickstarter brings and crowdfunding and and this direct hand sale you have too right yeah um you know what is a signature worth how much money do people spend on signatures every Mm -hmm. year i mean what is the price of the authentic or is there a price i mean it's one of the most intangible things you can possibly try to you know put a number upon but People, if I'm not behind the booth, they will they'll buy something and then Emily will hold on to it so I can come back and sign it. Oh, that's lovely, though. You know, just because that's the that's the that's sort of the I don't know. It sort of activates the connection between like, okay, this was mine and now it's yours. But there's always going to be a connection between us, and there's sort of a relationship that I have with every single person who owns one of my, you know, sort of my children. You know, anything I've ever made. It's a little bit of me that I've sort of tossed into the world, and I think that's the real value, you know, to the customer and to my fans is that connection with, you know, somebody who makes things. (laughs) 
somebody who, you know, is really loves what they do and is making things for people who love, you know, that kind of art form. I think that's wonderful. And people who want to buy your babies can go to chrisyates.net, which will be linked in the show notes, and, and check out Chris's puzzles, his read his extensive biography, which I, I uh, empathize with completely, having the same, <laughs> the same thing. And Chris, thanks for coming on the show and talking about your work and your art and your commerce. This was delightful to talk to you. It was a great pleasure, Glenn. Thanks for having me. You can now support the production of this podcast directly at patreon.com slash new disruptors. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash new disruptors. Support us at a level that starts at $1 per month. At higher levels, you can get our thanks on the air, t-shirts, and more. You can also sponsor this show. Visit podlexing.com, P-O-D-L-E-X-I-N-G, for more details about how to get your product or service in front of the attractive and clever listeners of The New Disruptors. Our theme music is by Jeff Tolbert, who you'll find at jefftolbert.com, and our audio engineer is Michael Warner. Our podcast audio is hosted by SoundCloud. We're part of the Boing Boing family of podcasts. We're also a production of The Magazine, an electronic periodical for curious people with a technical bent. Find out more and read free articles at v-magazine.org. This podcast is licensed under the Creative Commons by NCND 3.0 license. Feel free to distribute it intact and with attribution to us by linking back to our site. We only ask you don't offer it for sale. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Please join us again next time. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.